This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Hello, everybody. This is John Hamry. I welcome you to this podcast we call The Engine Room of Democracy. It's a curious term, but it's meant to be an expression about the underlying mechanics of how rule of law really works. And today we have the great privilege of talking with Suzanne Spaulding. Suzanne has been a leader in government for many years. She doesn't look that old, but she's got a great, great history with the government and doing great things. She started off, she was an assistant general counsel for the CIA. At one point, she became the chief of staff of the House Intelligence Committee. And most recently, she was an undersecretary for the Department of Homeland Security. So it's really a great fortune for us to be able to talk to her. This series of podcasts is about how the rule of law really governs how we operate as a nation, as a government. And we're going to explore that today with Suzanne. The topic today, which Suzanne is uniquely qualified to deal with, is the question, how do we keep government organizations accountable to us, you, me, citizens. How does that work in the real world? It sounds simple. It's actually the most profound thing that we could do. So, Suzanne, let me just ask you to start. Let's talk about just the foundation, the Constitution, how it really begins, the great foundation of American democracy. Describe this for us as you worked in this world. John, thank you. And let me start first by thanking you for conceiving of this very important series of conversations and for the honor and privilege of being a part of this very first in this series with you. And most importantly, for your leadership over so many years, as, as you know, when I have had those rare honor opportunities to introduce you, one of my favorite parts of your bio that a lot of people don't know is the time that you spent at the Divinity School. And I think it is <laughs> a reflection and reflective of your thoughtfulness on these issues. So thank you. Oh, thank of course, you. it is appropriate that you would start this discussion about the engine of democracy around that fundamental document of the Constitution, because that is really where it all begins and what it's really ultimately, again, all about. And we talk about 
that we are a nation, you know, governed by the rule of law. And that really is premised on this commitment to the Constitution, to this document that articulates our shared values and that establishes a framework designed to ensure that it is indeed a government by the people and for the people. And that gets to your fundamental issue of accountability, right? That's how we do that. That's how it is a government for the people. And that's the distinction you will recall when Rod Rosenstein came to CSIS when he was, I believe at the time, Deputy Attorney General, shortly before he stepped down. And whether any of our listeners are, are fans or not of Rod Rosenstein, he gave a very articulate description of the distinction between rule of law and rule through or rule by law. And he and I both, having had the privilege of serving in government when I was at DHS in discussions with China and Russia with those governments, and Rod obviously had occasions to work with those governments as well, saw firsthand how that difference plays out, that the rule through and or the rule by law puts the rule in service of the ruler, puts the law in service of the ruler. Rule of law puts the law first, right? And it puts the emphasis on law as a way of preserving those shared values. One of the things that you and I share is the honor and privilege of serving in the federal government as public servants. And we took an oath. I've always been struck by the fact that the oath we took and that all of our listeners who had that privilege of, of working in the federal government take that oath to preserve and protect the Constitution. As national security lawyers, we used to have frequent conversations about who is your client. Your client is not the president. Your client is not that cabinet secretary where you might be working. Your client is the American people and the Constitution. And that's a fundamental difference that I think goes to the heart of this. And as you point out, the way in which we stay true to that, to make sure that it's not simply about passing laws, you can pass laws to permit all kinds of atrocities, and the Third Reich did, and authoritarian regimes today do. What keeps us uh, rule of law is that question of accountability. How do we hold our leaders and our government accountable? The Constitution does this in part through that structure that it establishes of the co-equal branches of government recognizing that these leadership positions, great power, uh, great potential for abuse, co-equal branches that are designed to check each other to prevent anyone from sliding into rule through law rather than rule of law. So that accountability requires a level of transparency. That's why we say democracy depends upon transparency, right? It depends on that informed and engaged citizenry because it is our responsibility to hold those institutions accountable for living up to our aspirations as captured in that foundational document of the Constitution. Suzanne, it's such a, an important insight when you said that you know, the Nazis passed laws, but it wasn't rule of law. It wasn't the way we think about it. I'm so grateful that you highlighted that. Let me ask, if I may, we have a constitution that's built on checks and balances, is the kind of the formal term. We broke up the authority of the government to do things unilaterally, and we made it subject to consensus. Tell me, how are you thinking about that right now? 
I think that is under strain right now. So several things need to happen. And the framers in designing these checks and balances assumed that there would be a loyalty to the institution and an understanding of the participants in each of those institutions of the important role that their institution, that their branch in this case, plays in preserving that rule of law and accountability to the public. And the public needs to have trust and confidence that that is happening. And I think both of those things, frankly, are under strain right now. Suzanne, can I ask you to reflect on your experience when you were the chief of staff of the House Intelligence Committee? If you think about this, democracies operate entirely in the public. That's the nature of our discussion. But, you know, governments have to do things in secret. You were at that pivot point, that fulcrum point where open democracy has to deal with secrecy. Tell us how you think about that. It was very interesting. I saw it both when I was uh, in the general counsel's office at CIA and then both in my time as Jane Harmon's chief of staff for the minority in the House and Arlen Specter's general counsel in the majority in the Senate. That tension, as you say, between the transparency that we just discussed that is required for a democracy and the need for secrecy at times in national security to protect sources and methods, right? To protect those individuals who are, you know, putting their lives at risk to provide us with information, for example. And so intelligence activities reside uncomfortably in a democracy. And the oversight committees are one of the ways in which we reconcile or deal with or mitigate that tension. And they do that only if they can sustain trust, the trust of the American people, and frankly, the trust of the executive branch. When I was with the intelligence oversight committees, it did not take long to figure out that there was really no way, if you had a terrible relationship with the intelligence community you were overseeing, there was no way you were going to be able to do effective oversight. There are just too many ways for them to hide information. And it had to be premised on a mutual trust that that the intel uh, on the part of Congress, trusting that the intelligence community would abide by the law, which requires them to keep the intelligence committees fully and currently informed of significant intelligence activities, and trust on the part of the intelligence community that the oversight committees were putting the national interest first and would not reveal the secret information that they were given and would not politicize that relationship with the information that they were given. So it really does depend on some level of trust. I remember on the House Intelligence Committee when a member of the majority party complained to the intelligence community in an administration of the same party about having to play 20 questions, you know, to try to get information out of the intelligence community. When there's a lack of trust, that oversight breaks down. And it breaks down with respect to the American public's ability to rely on Congress to do that oversight in place of the normal transparency that the public would depend upon to hold that institution accountable. The public can't know everything, so they can't hold it accountable in the normal way. They count on Congress doing its job to hold that institution accountable, and then that sustains trust in the intelligence community. It is, it is, it is a really important dynamic. 
for our listeners, I hope you heard that really incredible insight that Suzanne Spaulding gave us, which is that there are so many ways to hide information that the only way to be able to do oversight is having a trustworthy relationship. It's a remarkably important insight. And thank you. Thank you for that. Suzanne, let me just ask you, in recent days, there's been a lot of talk about the so-called inspectors general. These are quasi-independent organizations. It's an anomaly. They are accountable to a secretary of a department. They're accountable to the Congress. It's very unusual. Tell me how you think about that. Yeah, they are, again, a really important part of this, uh, in addition to the oversight committees, of reconciling this tension. They're important across government, but they are particularly important in the intelligence community, where, again, we don't have the normal mechanisms, for example, of investigative journalism that you have in other parts of the government that are more open, where the press can perform its role in helping to be part of that system of accountability, and where even whistleblower protections are more limited than they are in other parts of the government. Inspectors general are important across the board as an independent ability to really dig in and do investigations and audits of the government, but but particularly important in the intelligence community. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why, if I'm not mistaken, my, my old boss, Senator Arlen Specter, on the Senate Intelligence Committee, pushed through the Congress the first statutory IG at CIA to give it an even greater level of independence. So these inspectors general, are, they're different kinds. Some of them are given more independence than others based on the statute that sets them up. But they are all designed to be independent, to provide an independent look at what's going on in our departments and agencies across the government. And as I say, that level of independence is what gives them the credibility that is needed to be able to reassure the public that that somebody is watching and holding accountable in their name in areas that have to be secret that they cannot be part of. And this is true in DOD, as well as in the DNI and CIA and FBI and across the board. Glenn Fine was the, uh, when I was on the House Intel Committee, Glenn Fine was the Inspector General for the FBI. And we knew that he was independent and a person of great integrity. And when he did an investigation into the use of an authority called National Security Letters, an administrative subpoena that the Bureau had, we knew that we could trust his findings because he was independent and as I say, a person of integrity, he then went to DOD and, and is among the growing ranks of inspectors general who have been fired. And that is a real concern right now that I worry undermines the public's trust in the independence of these inspectors general yeah. who are doing such an important service for that accountability that the public relies on. Suzanne, let me just step back. This raises a question about the way we structure judicial oversight in a democracy. We've created a system where the attorney general is kind of the supreme authority in the executive branch, not the legal side, but the executive branch. But he's a political appointee. A lot of people are questioning it. There are some real issues right now that surround the decisions that Attorney General Barr has made. How does the Justice Department work in this system? You know, objectively, how does it work? So you're absolutely right. The Attorney General is 
really kind of a unique member of the president's cabinet. We always start with that. The attorney general is a member of the president's cabinet, but is still expected to be somewhat independent. And the kinds of lines that are traditionally drawn are, for example, the president through the attorney general can decide what the priorities are going to be, right? They're limited resources that the Justice Department and our law enforcement folks or prosecutors across the country can bring to bear, what are going to be the prosecutorial priorities, you know, policies generally with respect to the Justice Department. But with respect to individual cases, prosecutions, it has always been understood that that should not be influenced in any way by politics, by the personal interest of executive branch or congressional or anybody else, and that it needed to be perceived, not just actually be independent, but be perceived by the public as independent. And so in the past, I think most attorneys general have understood this role. And it has often led to some tensions between the Justice Department and the White House. I don't think it's speaking out of school. I think it's pretty well known that, you know, there were questions when Janet Reno was the attorney general about whether she was a team player, whether she was on the team. But even then, there was a clear understanding that in elaborate rules and policies, White House did not call the Justice Department about any pending cases. You know, not even to say where is it or what's the status, nothing. To preserve that appearance of independence and impartiality because it goes to the core of the public's faith in the independence and impartiality of our justice system. And in part, that is because that justice system plays such an important role in that all-important accountability on behalf of the American public. It's pretty foundational when you think about it. I mean, it's the way we Americans uh, have trust in our government, even though politicians will change. You know, we have to have this foundational confidence in our government. Uh, I, 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 should, I should add, John, I don't, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but, but no, please. But even more than, I mean, there's a, so there's a level of independence we require of the Department of Justice. The FBI director, FBI is part of the Department of Justice, interesting relationship there, I think is even more reflective of the, the, the likes to which we think we should go to preserve the independence of our justice system. And it's reflected in the FBI director's 10-year term. Let me shift if I could ask. It's a complicated issue, but the government has enormous capacities to conduct surveillance on people, spying on people. This frightens some Americans. So let me ask you, you know, about 40 years ago, we established a framework for spying on Americans, the FISA Act. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that put ground rules in place. Would you please describe for us what is the nature of the system that controls the government so that spying on American citizens is lawful? There are two legal frameworks under which the government can conduct electronic surveillance of Americans. One is in the ordinary crime context, of course, and that's Title III of the criminal code. And that is a normal criminal warrant to put up a wiretap to do electronic surveillance of Americans. And that is based on probable cause to believe that a crime is being committed. That is based on the Fourth Amendment. And the Supreme Court 
know, that was not always understood that our electronic communications, our telephone calls and our emails back and forth, et cetera, were protected by the Fourth Amendment, restriction on unreasonable search and seizures without a warrant. But the Supreme Court in a series of cases ultimately held that, yes, this is protected by the Fourth Amendment. The question then, so we got Title III, police had to go get warrants and investigators had to go get warrants to listen on your phone calls. The question then came up, of course, about national security. What about in the context of, you know, we got foreign powers, we got, you know, Russian spies running around, we got, we got, they, you know, recruiting Americans, and we don't want to have to tell them, we don't have to go through all of the transparency that's built into Title III. Uh, and initially thought, no need for a warrant because this fell under the president's, you know, commander-in-chief authority for national security. The Supreme Court said, no, not quite. And they said, you know, you need to have something in place if you're going to be conducting electronic surveillance of Americans. The upshot of that was this compromise, really, between Congress and the executive branch that became the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, which sets forth a different procedure for intelligence investigations, national security investigations, the law was originally enacted to cover either foreign powers, foreign governments, or their agents, agents of foreign powers. And the probable cause was not probable cause to believe a crime was being committed, but probable cause to believe that the person you're surveilling is an agent of a foreign power. The law has been amended over the years. It's been expanded in a number of significant ways. But at its core, that's what it's about. And part of what makes it so interesting is that the decisions are made by special judges in secret. And that has been, not surprisingly, and I think somewhat appropriately, somewhat controversial, right? It's something that makes us nervous and uncomfortable. And so we want to make sure we have accountability over that secret ex parte, which means the other party doesn't get to be there. Obviously, you're going to be conducting electronic surveillance of a suspected terrorist. You're not going to invite them to have a lawyer come in and argue the other side. You need to do this in secret. You don't want to alert them, right? And it's vitally important for our national security that we are able to conduct surveillance of individuals who we believe with probable cause to be agents of a terrorist group, for example. But it is it is special judges chosen by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. They hear these applications presented by the government in secret, and they issue authorization for the surveillance. Suzanne, that was a brilliant discussion about this central issue. Just for our listeners, you know, what Suzanne was referring to was the Fourth Amendment to the Bill of Rights, which says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizures shall not be violated. But of course, the challenge has been to find a way to reconcile that clear right, American citizens, with national security. It's been an ongoing challenge for us to be able to do both. If I could ask you, Suzanne, you mentioned the FISA court. Very interesting. It's not like normal courts. The judges are appointed, as I understand, by the chief justice. They undertake their deliberations in secrecy. They do not publish their findings or their rulings. You know, every court at least in Western legal systems, every court establishes its legitimacy by explaining its rulings to the public. What do you think about this for the FISA court? It's definitely a unique institution. And there's even debate about whether, you know, Article 3 of the Constitution is what, you know, is the framework for our judicial branch. 
there is a debate about whether these are Article Three judges or are they, you know, some other kind of creature because they are not picked through the normal process to be doing this task of the FISA reviews. The FISA judges' decisions with respect to individual applications have to be secret, certainly at least, you know, at the time they are being made. As we talked about, we, we don't want to be alerting these people, you know, the potential targets and the applications contain a lot of sensitive, typically intelligence information. There is a review process, and that is the FISA Court of Review. So in, the, in addition to the individual FISA judges ruling on applications, every once in a while, something will go up to the FISA Court of Review. And it's sort of an appellate body here for the FISA judges. And just in the last decade or so, a few of the FISA Court of Review decisions have been made public, which I think is critically important. They are not typically a review of a particular application. What the FISA Court of Review is ruling on is an interpretation of FISA itself. They often review the process. They will review aspects of the procedure, standards, you know, at various junctures. They're really making rulings on the interpretation of the law. And it's so important that those decisions be made public because we don't have secret laws in this country, right? We don't have a secret procedure that nobody knows about for national security investigations. We have a public law and we have public debate in Congress every few years now about that public law and how it should be interpreted and how it's being applied. We can't know everything. And that goes to this, you know, tension that we talked about. We can't know application by application, how it's being applied. But when the court of review makes a ruling on the interpretation of that statute, that is a legal ruling that is important for the American public to understand how this law is being interpreted and used. So there's been increasing pressure for those court decisions to be made public, and a number of them have, and it's been really uh, helpful and important. So glad I had a chance to talk to you today. I learned so much. Just this last discussion was in, was new to me. I'm so grateful for it. Uh, Suzanne, let me ask you about how you were the chief clerk for the intelligence community, and we undertake secret activities, sometimes secret operations, of the government. We don't want to publicly admit it. We put this under the umbrella of finding, that the president has a finding. And let me ask you to reflect on this question. Both, what does it mean for the president to operate under a finding, and how good is the oversight by the Congress of this? The notion of a finding goes back to the National Security Act of 1947 and Title V of that act, a much more recent amendment than 1947. I think it was probably sometime in the 90s when Congress and the executive branch realized again that there was the need for some oversight of specific kind of intelligence activities. And again, I think there's an understanding, why would the executive branch agree to congressional oversight of these things if they didn't have to, right? But I think there's an understanding in the intelligence community, certainly among those that I worked with when I was at CIA, most of the folks there understood that in order to sustain public support for the intelligence community and its activities, they needed that public trust and Congress was an important part of that. So findings cover intelligence activities that are other than 
just collecting information. Most of what we think about when we think about CIA and the intelligence community, they're gathering information all over the world to help decision makers. But we also know that, of course, that the intelligence community and CIA in particular also engages in activities that are really designed to change events on the ground. They're not just gathering information, but, you know, if you think about, you know, some of the more high profile things that have come out, whether it's uh, Iran-Contra, arms to Bosnia, you know, support for rebel groups around the world over the years, all of the stuff that came out in the church committee reviews of assassination attempts, you know, in the 50s by CIA. Those are covert actions. And what Congress and the executive branch ultimately agreed to was that the intelligence community couldn't just go off and do, and the president couldn't just say, go do a covert action, that they needed to be reported to Congress. So that was one part of it, was they needed to be accountable to Congress. And then Congress is accountable to the public for doing its job and overseeing those appropriately. And Congress has to always assume that those will not stay secret forever. And so at some point, they are going to be asked to account for how they did oversight of those activities. The second accountability is to remove what we used to call plausible deniability, right? That if intelligence activities were, were taking place somewhere and were discovered and became public, that the president would somehow say, oh, I didn't know anything about it, right? That, you know, the public is shocked by what's being done, that the president could walk away from it and have plausible deniability. Finding is a way of holding the president accountable for these risky activities. The president needs to find that they are absolutely necessary in our national security interests, and what are the mechanisms and the guardrails that are being put on to make sure that they are consistent with what the American public would expect the intelligence community to be doing. So that's captured in a document called The Finding, and it has to be reported to Congress. Gosh, I'm so glad to have you explain it to me. I needed to hear that, and I think probably all of our listeners also needed it. Let me just summarize this conversation. It's been fabulous, Suzanne. Thank you. You know, rule of law is absolutely fundamental to our Constitution. It's the core of how American civil society really works. It depends on institutions, institutions that we create that implement rule of law. It depends on procedures that we can observe where we can hold people accountable, organizations accountable for what we're doing. And ultimately, rule of law depends on a transcending consensus by the people that transcends the politics. It's about the good of the people. It's about the good of the nation. Those were the key messages I think you gave us. Suzanne, any concluding thoughts that you have for us today? John, I think that's a great summary. The only thing I would add and emphasize really is that it also depends on that informed and engaged citizenry. It depends on every one of us. We cannot assume that the Constitution and the system of checks and balances is going to keep us on the right track, right? Or that inspectors general or oversight committees are going to be able to keep these things on the right track. If we are not engaged and holding all of them accountable. Michael Bennett came to CSIS several months ago and talking about disinformation and eroding public trust, but he very eloquently talks about the framers. When we talk about the framers of the constitution, that it's not just the people who were there at the time, that the constitution is that living document that depends on every one of us 
to keep it real, to make it work. And that we need to think about people like Frederick Douglass, whose biography I'm reading right now, people like Martin Luther King, Rosa Brooks, people who are marching in our streets today as framers of the Constitution. I always think about the national anthem and how few people focus on the fact that it ends in a question mark. It starts with a question, you know, say, can you see, is the flag still there, right? And then talks about the battle through the night and how during various moments during the night when the rockets went off and there was enough light, you know, we could see that the flag was still there. But now morning is breaking and there's uncertainty about whether that flag is still flying. And it doesn't end with that chest thumping, absolutely, without a doubt, the flag is still there. It ends with the question, you know, does the flag still wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave? And it is a question that we are challenged with each and every day. Our role in making sure that the answer to that question continues to be yes. And John, I cannot thank you enough for the role you have played over so many decades and today in helping to make that happen. So thank you. I'm so grateful to hear this, your story about the national anthem. It, I hadn't thought about it that way, Suzanne. It is the great privilege to be here, and it's a great privilege to have someone of your talent and capabilities that was willing to lead and serve our country. Suzanne, thank you. This has been a real privilege to be with you. Likewise. Thank you, John. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 